the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see some believing Jews teaching that the Gentiles also need to be circumcised in order to be saved. There is great dispute, and this question is eventually taken to the church at Jerusalem. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. The title of the message is, Goodbye Legalism. Acts 15. You know, every, every book of the Bible seems to almost have like that holy place inside of it. And for me, the book of Acts, Acts 15, is, is this moment, this place. Jesus is working, still working. That's the whole theme of the book of Acts. And as we're moving through the book of Acts, we see him continuing to work. We saw that Paul and Barnabas have come back from their mission trip. They bloodied and bruised, and yet they're elated at their success. And they share that news. People got saved. Churches were planted. And it was a time of great celebration. But as is often the case, the enemy isn't celebrating. (laughs) And since the work that God was doing through Antioch couldn't be deterred from the outside through persecution, he goes to work from the inside. And as such, enter stage right, the crisis in the church of legalism. Charles Spurgeon said, it would appear that God does not know the best way of saving men. And men are so wise that they amend his methods. Is not this a refinement of blasphemy? Does it not make laughter in hell to see licentious men censuring the pure gospel and finding fault with free forgiveness? Wow. As we look at the church deal with this problem, My heart is that we would not relate to God in a legal way, but we would say goodbye to legalism just like they did. So Acts chapter 15, but if you could also turn to Romans chapter 10 and Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be bouncing back and forth because these two passages deal with the topics that we're talking about here. So I think it's pertinent to our study. So Acts 15, Romans 10, and Galatians chapter 2. So very close together. And you could tear off some of your bulletin and kind of, put it in those spots in your Bible. Or if you're using your iPad, you can just put a little sticky flag there. Romans 10, Galatians 2, and of course, Acts 15. So in Acts 15, verse 1, here there in Antioch, everything's going great, and it just jumps right in and tells us what happens. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brothers and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. It doesn't get more clear than that, does it? 
these certain men. We don't know who these guys are, but Paul calls them false brothers. If you've already gotten to Galatians chapter 2, you can look at verse 4, and Paul describes this time when the danger of the false teacher came to Antioch, and he says in verse 4 of chapter 2 in Galatians, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So he references that these were false brothers. So these are not true believers. If these men aren't the beginning of the Judaizers who we're going to get to know throughout the New Testament, then they are a precursor to them because their theology is the same. So these guys came in. They're not true believers. They're false believers. They're false teachers. They come in and they taught, it says, the brothers there. So false teachers come in and they begin teaching true believers. And they were doing it over time. It's in the imperfect there, which means they began to teach and they kept at it. You know, it started off as a conversation. Man, wasn't today's sermon great? Yeah, you know, Paul's good, but man, he should us talk about grace a lot. Oh yeah, I guess he does. What's the problem with that? Well, you know, I mean, we need to honor the Lord. We need to fear God and we need to do things his way. Well, well, of course we need to be obedient to God. Yeah, and you know, you probably, you know, you know, I didn't hear him talk anything about circumcision. You know, and you're a Gentile and you're going, circumcision? I didn't hear him talk about that either. Well, you know, you know, I hope he never talks about it. <laughs> and as such, there was this conversation that was going on, and then they started teaching people that they needed to do this. That it was necessary, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, in the case, in this case, it's circumcision, but the false teaching behind it is simple. Jesus isn't enough. It's that simple. Jesus is enough. It's Jesus plus something else. And this brings up an important question. Is faith in Jesus enough? Which raises a few other questions. Is the cross sufficient for my sin? What makes a person right with God? Where does obedience come into our salvation? Because these questions are so important. The enemy of our souls is always trying to muddy up the answer. To steal our assurance of our salvation and replace it with a legalistic substitute to our relationship with God. There's very little that makes my blood boil than when someone says we're not justified by faith in Christ alone. Very little that makes my blood boil like that. And verse two says I'm in good company. It says here in verse two, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. I love the King James. No small dissension. That means there was a fight. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I would always say, talk about anytime me and Beverly would get into an argument, I would say we had some intense fellowship. So it's funny, people at church, they'd come in and say, you know, you know, what's going on? I said, well, we've been having a lot of intense fellowship lately, pastor. No small distension. The word there means to engage in intense and emotional expressions of differing opinions. In fact, it's the same word that is used to describe a riot or a rebellion. When Paul and Barnabas got wind of this, they were like, oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> and they immediately went and dealt with it. In fact, in Galatians 2, when it became a problem again later on at the church at Antioch, much later, Paul says he went in front of everybody and stood up to Peter to his face and rebuked him for what he was doing. You know, there are some things worth fighting for. Galatians 2.5, you know, if we go back over there, Paul explains their reaction to this. He says, to whom, in Galatians 2 verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. We didn't listen to them at all. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
Essential Christian doctrine is one of the things worth fighting for. And when this intense argument broke out, it says here that they determined the church there at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So the leaders at Antioch instructed Paul and Barnabas. They said, you need to take this argument to the pastoral staff and apostles in Jerusalem. Why? Well, some would have us believe that Jerusalem was in charge of everything and therefore they had to go and get permission to make sure they were teaching the right thing. I don't believe that's the case. Paul and Barnabas had already won the argument in Antioch. Gentiles were getting saved left and right. Churches were being formed all over the place without people getting circumcised. That argument was already won there. But if they could win this argument in these false teachers' own backyard, it would settle the issue forever. It might not stop the false teachers, but it would remove any legitimacy that they could claim. And the reason I bring this up is because chapter 15 is often called, if you have a church history book, they'll say this was the first church council. I really don't think the church had that type of organization back then. That's defining the past by what we do in the present, which is very, very dangerous. This was not a council. It was a call to exterminate legalism from its source, Jerusalem. Well, verse three, and being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. There's no question here in Paul and Barnabas's mind. They're not going to a debate. They're not going to try to make sure they're doing things right because as they're coming down to share these things with the church of Jerusalem, they're telling everybody about the grace of God. (laughs) They're telling everybody about justification by faith alone. They're spreading this awesome news that everyone can get saved if they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ and that's it. And it says there was great joy everywhere they preached that message. And this brings up my complaint with legalism. How is circumcision good news? (laughs) I don't see anyone walking around in bondage to uncircumcision, just wishing they could get circumcised. I don't see anyone walking around going, I just wish someone would lay a guilt trip on me about uncircumcision because this is a part of me that just needs to get right with God. No one's walking around in bondage to that. And it's the same with any other legalistic trick that someone wants to put on us. How is only a certain style of worship music or a dress code or a lack thereof good news? I remember when we first planted the church in Sanford years ago, and I would hear from this small group of folks, and I'd hear them say, yeah, you know, we don't take an offering, and we don't have to dress all nice, and this and that, and the other thing. And I remember I tried to gently say in a message once, I said, guys, if we're boasting about those things, what are we really saying to people? What are we really telling them our church is about? Is it about Jesus? That's not the message we're giving. A certain style of worship music, a dress code or lack thereof, circumcision, you name it, whether it's holiness theology or it's just the whole freedom theology that we find in a lot of churches today, you can do whatever you want. These legalistic trips that people are put on, that's not good news. I don't need to be set free from older music or newer music. I don't need to be set free from a tie or from not wearing one. You know what's good news? I don't have to be a drunk anymore. That's good news. I don't have to be a slave to pornography anymore. I don't have to walk around with guilt over all my failures. I can be forgiven and freed from sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If I were to wake up every day and hear God's voice whisper, okay, Will, don't blow it. You've been doing good for a few days. Make sure you don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G so you can get to heaven someday. I wouldn't have a single ounce of joy. And that's why David talked about the joy of his salvation. 
Do a study on joy in the Bible sometime. You find it's immediately linked with salvation. It's eternally linked with this idea of being washed of our sins. I've been rescued. I've been set free. That's good news. That's good news. And so verse four, they bring this good news to Jerusalem. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church. I love that. The word there means a cordial welcome. It was similar to like a reception when they got together and they were received. Wow, Paul, Barnabas, we've heard about all the awesome things God's doing. We're so glad to see you. And it seems like they even invited them to guest speak. It says, hey, you're here in town. Would you mind sharing with us all the awesome things that God is doing? And so it says here in verse four that they were received of the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. And certainly, as they were declaring that, that refers to what God was doing at Antioch, but it has to include the missionary trips to Cyprus and Asia Minor. But what would have been the main topic of that? That Jesus was saving Gentiles in droves. That would have been the topic of the sermon. That would have been the topic of the sharing. And while this news excited some, it didn't get that reaction from everybody. (laughs) Verse 5, but there rose up certain of the sect of Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, these are not the same as the false teachers who started this problem, okay, in Antioch. These are genuine believers who sincerely felt the Gentiles needed to become Jews first through circumcision if they were to be legitimate followers of Jesus. Now that the law of Moses still applied, even though the Messiah had died for our sins. And I bring this up is because there's always going to be sincere believers who will get tangled up in legalism. Just go to your Facebook page and you'll find it, probably in two-thirds of your posts from your Christian friends. I'm just serious. You're going to find posts about this style of music or this style of service. The liturgy is great. No, the openness is great. And you'll find all these things that say, this is where God really meets us. And it's all a distraction by the enemy. But this shows how deceptive legalism can be. I had a young lady who I worked with when I was at Chick-fil-A many years ago. We had good fellowship together. And I mean, she was hungry for the word and loved the Lord and loved to share her faith. And she said, I want to come to your church one day. And so she came and we were still meeting in the house because it was a long time ago. And so on that Sunday morning, she came, man, love the service, love the worship. She just enjoyed just being in the presence of God, enjoyed being with other believers. And she's like, listen, I'm so sorry. I've got to go real quick after the service though. And she said, I got to go change before, before my dad gets home. And she was 22 or something like that. And she's living with her dad. And I said, got to get changed. She's like, yeah, if you found out I wore jeans to church, I'm in big trouble. And I thought, what a heavy way to live where you got to focus on stuff that doesn't matter. And there's so much that does matter. So this shows how deceptive legalism can be, which leads to the question, how do you and I avoid getting entangled in it? Well, first off, we need to understand legalism is not obedience. I've heard churches that preach an easy kind of a grace or a sloppy agape or things like that. They'll say, well, you don't have to do anything. And and the idea being is that obedience isn't important. God calls us to holiness. We need to obey him. A born again believer has the Holy Spirit inside of him. And therefore he's convicting us when we disobey God and drawing us to a place of repentance and confession, right? I mean, we all know that. That's a given. That's understood. But you and I cannot base our standing with God upon our successes or our failures. Sometimes we develop this attitude of, well, I can ask God to help me in my marriage today because I read my Bible or I went to church. I can ask God to bless me at my job because I spent at least 30 minutes in devotion time this morning. That's a legal way of relating to God. There'd be many times when I would feel like, oh, I can't, I can't meet with this person yet because I haven't, I haven't had deep intimate time with God yet. I should have deep intimate time with God every day. 
But whether or not I've had deep intimate time with him, he still wants to use me because I've been washed in the blood of the lamb. That's a legal way of relating to God. And beyond that, you can't, certainly can't make any ritual or action besides faith a requirement to salvation. Whether it's baptism, whether it's raising your hands in church or not raising your hands in church, whether it's standing or sitting, none of those things, those rituals can make me feel like, oh, I'm, I'm right with God today because I did this. None of those things can be made a requirement of salvation like circumcision. Verse 6. And the apostles and the elders, they came together for to consider this matter. So after they invited Paul and Barnabas to share, and after the reception, there's now this private meeting between the pastoral staff of Jerusalem, the apostles, and Paul and Barnabas. And Galatians chapter 2 references this once again. In Galatians 2, verse 2, Paul says, And I went up by revelation, and I communicated unto them, that's the people at Jerusalem, with Barnabas. He also took Titus with him, it says. I communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but then he says, privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Paul's concern was that having preached that message to the church as a whole, because there are some who objected to it, that the message would fall flat and it would lose its luster. And so he wanted to meet with them privately to make sure that they were on board with this. Guys, you need to make sure that you're not letting legalism seep into this. And so it says they come together to consider this matter. And this was not just a staff meeting. The regular old, hey, let's get together and talk about how the church is doing, whatever. Paul and Barnabas are deeply concerned about the fact that some have publicly questioned what they're doing, and they're concerned about the health of the church at Jerusalem. And so the leadership of the church needed to make a clear statement so that the church wouldn't be confused. And the choices were clear. Support Paul and Barnabas from the leadership perspective or break from them. And because of cultural prejudices, that was not an easy conversation to have. And so it says, verse 7, and when there had been much disputing, apparently these Pharisees who were believers who loved the Lord, but were sincerely wrong, they were there at the meeting too, and they were objecting. And as the meeting were on, the staff wasn't getting anywhere. And so Peter, he decides to remind them that, you know what? God already answered this question a while ago. And so Peter, it says in verse 7, he rose up and he said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This is crazy because Peter's coming out and he's saying, why are we even talking about this? He tells me, he says, you know, (laughs) this is not secret information. You know how that a good while ago, God made choice. That phrase there means God showed his favor or his attitude towards what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. He showed his favor towards this idea of Gentiles getting saved just as they are. He already showed that he was in favor of that. That the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) That's the gospel in a nutshell right there. All anyone has to do with our message is receive it. It's that simple. That can't be that simple. Turn over Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 6 through 13, and Paul explains, but the righteousness which is of faith, it speaks on this wise. It tells us, don't say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven? What do I have to do to get up there? That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, the Pharisees, they had done that in the past, but how they had done that was they lowered the standard. They took the standard of Christ and they brought it down to a level where they felt like they could achieve it. That's what the Sermon on the Mount exists for. He said, hey, 
You've heard it said that if you commit adultery, you know, that's bad. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Hey, you've heard it said that if you commit murder, no good. But I say unto you, if you have hatred in your heart towards a brother, you've already committed murder. What does Jesus do? They had taken, you've heard it said, honor your mother and father. But then you lowered it down to a level where you said, well, if you tell mom and dad, hey, this is for your good, and then you cuss them out, you're okay. Jesus says, you've lost the standard. And that's why you think you can actually fulfill it. There's no standard that we can match that would actually allow us to ascend into heaven because the only way you can even make yourself think you can achieve that is to bring Christ down. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? What does the word of salvation say? What does the word of faith say? What does, what does God have to say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which we preach. Simple. It's right here, right here. That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Isn't that simple? (laughs) I love that. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. You know, it's the moment you believe in your heart, God says, I give you that righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You make that confession of faith and man, we welcome you into the body of Christ, right? But it happens, it starts in the heart. For the scripture says, whosoever believes in him shall not be ashamed. God will not turn them away. So Peter reminds them of his experience with Cornelius. And he reminds them that salvation, like we just read, is an internal matter. He says in verse eight, and God, which knows the hearts, he bore them witness, Cornelius and his family and his friends. He bore them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us. God who knows the hearts, literally means God, the knower of hearts. I like that. It's just who he is. He always knows what's in our hearts. In other words, they hadn't even verbally professed faith, but they were already saved because it had happened in their heart. Romans 10.10. Righteousness comes the moment we believe in our hearts. Salvation is recognized when we make a profession of that faith with our mouths. And because God knew this idea of Gentiles being saved would be so counter to their culture, God took the witness stand on their behalf by baptizing them with the Holy Spirit the moment they believed in their hearts. So that Peter would go, whoa, and everybody else said, whoa, this is crazy. They're they're already saved. How is this possible? They don't have to become Jews. (laughs) Nope. He reminds them that everyone needs cleansing from sin. Verse 9 And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. See, if you were a Jew and and you had some type of ceremonial uncleanness, if you weren't circumcised, which that was even worse, but if you had some part of you that was not ceremonially or ritually clean, you could not go and partake in the tabernacle worship or at this time, the temple worship. And as a result, you would be separated from God. And so for the Jew to conceive of a Gentile, a dirty Gentile, not being cleansed in some way first before being able to come to God in a ritual way, they just thought, well, that's impossible. How can they come to God? But Peter says he put no difference between us and them. Purify, that word purify means to cleanse from ritual contamination. He had cleansed them from their ceremonial impurities. And he says, how does he do it? Purifying their hearts by what? By faith, right? By faith, not works or ceremonies. 
This calls to mind the truths that David said in Psalm 51 when he was busted with his own sin. And he said this, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He says, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. David, in that same passage, he's gonna say, sacrifice and burnt offering, you're not looking for that. Ezekiel 36, you can read it on your own time, verses 25 through 27, the prophecy of the new covenant where he said, I'll take the heart of stone out and I'll put a heart of flesh in there. And behold, I'll make a new covenant with them and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. That's good news. Paul will later use the argument that Abraham was declared right with God 15 years before he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision can't be a requirement of salvation. I'll let you do your own study on that. But I love Peter. And this is where things start to really slip into that holy place. Because Peter in verse 10, he reminds them of their own failure to keep the law. He says, now, therefore, why? Do you tempt God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He says, in light of the fact that God has already answered this question clearly, we have no reason to even debate this. He says, why do you tempt God? Why are we even here? The word there, test or tempted, means to put on trial or to examine thoroughly. And Peter rightly proposes that their problem isn't with Paul or Barnabas or Antioch or even Gentiles. Their problem is with God. And that's not a good thing. (laughs) It's not a good thing when you've got a problem with God. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.